we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. So why do we think that we can just take straight off the page these laws about tithes and offerings and just plonk them straight down into a New Testament context? We don't do that with animal sacrifices. That's obvious. Why do we, why do we think it's obvious that you can just pick up the bits of the Old Testament um, about tithing and plonk them down into our modern context? We can't do that because we are now under a new covenant, a different covenant. There may be continuities, but the actual concrete applications may well be different under a different covenant. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. This is the audio series for people who love the Bible. And loving the Bible, we not only want to read and understand the Bible for ourselves, we find ourselves often giving back out God's Word, where people who teach the Bible lead Bible studies lead discussion groups about the Bible. And so it's our desire not just to read it for a little bit of inspiration, perhaps, but to really own whole books of the Bible, understanding uh, their themes and how to explain and apply them. For this episode of Help Me Teach the Bible, I am in Cambridge, England, and I am in the study of Lee Gatiss. And Lee Gatiss is going to talk with us today about the book of Malachi. Lee, thank you for allowing me into your home to talk about this book today. It's great to have you here. It's great to do this. Well, Lee, you, uh, people in the States might not be familiar with your name, but you have served a number of churches that people right, might recognize the names of those churches, mm-hmm. uh, St. Ebbs or Ebbs, how do you Ebbs. say that? St. Ebbs. Ebbs in Oxford. Mm-hmm. You served at All Souls Langham Place, mm-hmm. at St. Helens Bishopsgate. Uh, in addition to your studies at Oxford, you also studied philosophy at Oak Hill College in London. Uh, theology, you, theology, yeah, yes. and pastoral studies. And then you have a THM in historical and systematic theology from Westminster Theological Seminary. Yep. Did you spend time in the States to do that? No, that was here through a London sort of campus that they have. Okay. And then you spent three years researching 17th century biblical interpretation at Peterhouse and Tyndale House, Cambridge. Yeah. You look so young. How can you have, <laughs> how can you have this much education? <laughs> well, I'm in my late 30s, Nancy. I'm uh, 30, 13. So, um, yeah, I, I, I maybe look as if I'm half that age, which is a great blessing. Uh-huh. It used to be a curse when I was, you know, a bit younger. I always You'd wanted to look older. show up at church and they would go like, who is this? Who's yeah, you should preach? go to the youth group or something instead yes. of preaching. But um, <laughs> now that I'm in my late 30s, as I say, I think it's a, it's a great blessing to look much younger than I am. Now, you have a role now with the church society. Explain yeah. to us what that is and what you do in that role. Oh, church society is a, a, an ancient um, Anglican and evangelical organization within the Church of England. We've been around a couple of hundred years or so. Um, You can tell we're evangelical because we do three things and they all begin with the same letter. We do publishing, politics and patronage. Publishing, we do um, uh, uh, lots of stuff on the web, uh, Facebook and Twitter, and we have books and a theology journal and a regular magazine. So lots of publishing. We do politics within the Church of England on the General Synod. And uh, I write lots of letters to archbishops and that sort of thing. Um, and thirdly, patronage. This is a strange system in the Church of England where every uh, church has a patron. So when the vicar, the minister, uh, moves on or dies or is promoted to glory, promoted to the bench of bishops or something like that, the patron is the one who comes in and helps the church find their next vicar. 
So we have that responsibility, that great privilege in about 130 different parishes in the country. So publishing politics and patronage. And I get to do lots of preaching as well. So, yeah. Well, as if you didn't have enough already to do, you recently finished an enormous project as general editor of the Proclamation NIV Bible. Is That's that correct? Right. Yeah, the NIV Proclamation Bible. Um, it's a great project with uh, contributors from four continents, uh, 65 or so different people, men and women from all over the world, contributing uh, introductions to each part of the Bible. Uh, so we've got um, a page or two on every book and also several pages introducing each part of the Bible. So something on the Gospels, something on how to handle those historical books in the Old Testament. And then at the beginning of the Bible, there are 10 sort of introductory essays on uh, different things like how to handle the history in the Bible. Is it true? Uh, can we rely on it? Uh, how do you find the melodic line or the, the big central theme of any one part of the Bible? How do you apply the Old Testament uh, how do you apply the New Testament? So different uh, sort of essays introducing those things. It's for a general audience. It's not at a high sort of seminary or doctoral level or something like that, but for anybody who wants to uh, to tuck into the Bible. I imagine that people who are listening to this uh, audio series, they think, well, I already have a number of study Bibles on mm -hmm. my shelf. Mm -hmm. So what would be your pitch to them <laughs> as to why they might want to add this one? Well, this one doesn't give you a comment on every single verse. What it does is it just gives you an introduction, a flavour of the book, an understanding of how you might teach it. So it does have that particular focus on what is the big theme here? How does the book break up into sections? What would the applications look like? And how am I going to teach it? What will be the tricky things in this book in terms of teaching it in a Bible study, uh, say, for a women's Bible study? So my wife was an associate editor on this projects uh, Kerry and she helped me to think about how uh, in a ladies bible study group which she's at right now uh, how would how would I want to um, be set up to teach this book and so it gives you a, a bit of a, a help on that and a steer. Well let's turn our conversation to what we're here to talk about today which is the book of Malachi and um, I know you've taught Malachi in a number of settings mm -hmm. Over the years, right? That's right, yeah. In fact, I came across online uh, your notes, I guess, maybe at the Proclamation Trust website or St. Helens Bishop's Gate. From St. Helens Bishop's Gate. Yeah, uh, St. Helens so Media. notes you provided to those who were leading or helping to lead discussions through the book of Malachi. Yeah. And that I'll put a link to those on the website with right. this that people can download and look at those because those are very helpful. Those are for people who are leading small group Bible studies or home groups um, on the book of Malachi. Yeah. Well, as we work our way maybe through some of these disputations, these arguments, in a sense, between God and his people, I guess I've always found it interesting. Here we are in the Old Testament. So many people think of the Old Testament as, as this God who is so harsh Mm -hmm. Right. And judgmental. And there's something I especially love about this uh, ending of the Old Testament. And you have right there at the beginning, uh, God just laying his heart out on the table mm -hmm. and saying to his people, whose people, as we're going to discover in the rest of the book, they are not loving him well. No, by <laughs> any means. Not at all. And yet he just puts his heart out on the table to his people. and He says, I have loved you. Um, and then that they would have the <clears throat> audacity to say, how have you loved us? Yes. It seems to me when we're teaching this, I mean, you can't just read any of these things flat. 
no, quietly. No. And whether it's them actually heckling the preacher as Malachi says these things, which it could be, uh, or whether it's Malachi putting those, you know, putting those words down that he knows are in their hearts. He's nailing their, their attitude, isn't He's he? He's nailing their attitude. And, and it is a kind of sneering, you know, how have you loved us? Um, what do you mean we've wearied God? I think it's best to read it that way rather than an alternative would be to say, well, they're really puzzled. Oh, what, what do you mean, God? What do, what do you mean you've loved us? How, how's that then? Can, can you just remind me? Oh, there may be something of that. Some of them may have just been a bit puzzled. Um, but I think it is more a kind of dismissive attitude because of the situation they're in. They don't know. Well, what do you mean, God, you've loved us? We're a, we're a tiny little rump of a nation. We're a little tiny remnant. Um, and we've got these Babylonians and Persians and all these other nations trampling over us. In what way have you, the great God of the universe, loved us? We, we feel like we're trampled on and we're nothing. His answer to them is somewhat surprising. I, <laughs> when I read his answer, I think uh, for many of us who read God's word, his answer is something we see as a problem in some ways yes. uh, with God that he could say this. So help us understand his answer. That's right. Well, he's, what he says is, um, is not G Esau Jacob's brother? And you think, well, uh, what, what, well, that may be the case, God, but what's that got to do with the fact that you they love us or not? Us. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> and uh, what he's taking us back to here is a story right at the very beginning of Genesis, uh, where Esau and Jacob were twins, uh, both part of the, uh, the, the the chosen line that God is focusing on in Genesis. Um, but God particularly chose and loved Jacob and not Esau. Now, Esau also didn't love and choose God. He moved away from God's uh, God's law, by marrying outside of the covenant, by being sexually immoral, by giving away his birthright for a, a bowl of stew and that sort of thing. And God has basically said, I'm going to choose Jacob and I'm going to follow that line. Now, that's not because Jacob's particularly great. I mean, the, the name Jacob means he grabs the heel. He's a deceiver and he isn't a very nice guy, Jacob. Um, but God has chosen this line and this family to be his family, his chosen people. Um, and Malachi is sort of reminding the people, therefore, that they are part of this uh, this sovereign plan of God that goes back 1500 years or so. I found it interesting in your <clears throat> notes on teaching this section. You said that you know this passage is quoted by Paul in Romans 9, yeah. Yeah. but that about in regard to predestination, but that if you were teaching through the book of Malachi, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily go there. Help That's me right. understand why. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think Paul in uh, Romans chapter nine uses Malachi uh, as part of his argument about election and uh, who God chooses and who God doesn't. And he uses it correctly. I mean, he's not twisting scripture or anything When he like says, that. Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I Esau hated. I hated. Um, and God can choose who he wants to choose, and he cannot choose who he wants to not choose. And that is his right as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Um, so Paul is using Malachi as part of an argument there, um, and he's using it correctly. But Malachi is using the same idea with a different pastoral purpose. So Paul's pastoral purpose is different in Romans. He spent eight chapters already talking about something else, about God's mercies and his grace towards us. And he's going to go on to talk about other things in the rest of Romans. Malachi talks in the beginning here uh, with his own specific purpose, that he wants to remind the Israelites um, of this small nation that, that his covenant with them still stands, that he still loves them, even though it's been many, many years since he first made that promise. 
um, and they may have forgotten about it and think that he's forgotten about it. So Malachi's pastoral purpose is different to Paul's. So I think it's too easy to just grab a verse and think, oh, well, that's in Romans 9. Let's go to Romans 9. And then you end up in a long and quite involved discussion about predestination um, <clears throat> and uh, and reprobation as well, which are very emotive and difficult topics. And you quickly forget about Malachi and why Malachi was talking about this. So I think to keep our noses down in, in Malachi, to see how Malachi uses it first, and then maybe after the Bible study over coffee, we can have a chat about okay. how this text is used in the New Testament. Well, that seems an important principle for being a good teacher of the Bible in yeah. terms of disciplining yourself, even though, yes, it is mentioned here and you could go off on it. Yeah. You're keeping your focus on what was what was its purpose? What was the original writer's uh, purpose in uh, presenting this? Exactly. And sometimes the New Testament can help us with that. Sometimes other places in the Bible where these verses are quoted might help us to understand them a bit better. But sometimes they have their own purpose in doing in using these texts, which is different. So, yes, keep our noses in Malachi. And we see that basically he says, I loved you. And you can see that in the fact that I have destroyed your enemies, as I promised to do. Um, and that's his his point. Often we think, well, you show your love in a, in a positive way by giving someone flowers or <laughs> giving them a copy of your uh, book, The Forgotten Cross, or something <laughs> like that. You show your love for someone by giving <laughs> them something nice. Sentimental something, ways. Yes, that's right. Um you, you don't often think, well, actually, I show my love for somebody by not liking their enemies. Um, but God is is in an alliance here with Israel. He's saying, I am your ally. I am on your side. And I've shown you that by destroying your enemies. Um, what does that mean for us living under the new covenant? Well, this is this is a really interesting question. If we if we were just to go straight to Romans nine, we would think, well, those who are Esau are those who are not chosen uh, non-Christians and those who are not going to be in heaven. And we would say, well, those are our enemies and therefore we must want them to be killed. And that's not where Malachi is going. That's that would be an incorrect use of it, I think. If we think about the New Testament, who are our enemies that that Jesus has destroyed? Uh, well, he loved us and gave himself up for us on the cross. And uh, as he's on the cross, he, he had nailed there all the um, transgressions that we committed and triumphed over the devil who uses those things against us um, to uh, to attack us. So really our, our enemies, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, are not flesh and blood at all. They are the powers in the heavenly realms, the devil and his minions, his hordes. Um, and uh, so the world, the flesh and the devil really are our enemies as far as the New Testament is concerned. So I think to sort of understand this in our own context, we'd see that God has shown his love for us by defeating all our enemies on the cross. Jesus died to defeat the devil, to take away anything he could use against us, um, to take away any sense of guilt or um, you'll be punished for your sin. The devil can't whisper those things in our ears now without us also being able to say, well, Jesus died for me go away. Um, and so he's shown his love for us by defeating all our enemies on the cross. That's where I think the New Testament would take us there. What a worthy goal as a teacher to help our very uh, here and now oriented um, listeners mm -hmm. to value and esteem the defeat of that enemy. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And not to think that Malachi is telling us, well, God loves Christians and he hates everybody else. That isn't what he's saying here. He's saying God loves you and has shown you that by defeating your enemies. Sin. The next uh, conversation, I guess we'll say, that God has back and forth with his people, mm. um, he, he says, uh, you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Because he says the priests mm. have done so. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Yeah. What is this about? Well, he's talking particularly there to the priests. Um, and there's a big priestly um, emphasis in Malachi. We're looking a lot at the, the temple, temple the sanctuary, as it's called as well elsewhere. Um, and that, that you're, you need to understand what's going on in the temple to understand Malachi. So they, they had a, a great and glorious temple uh, under Solomon. Um, the king about a thousand BC and uh, this was the place where God had set his name in Jerusalem in that temple uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and the priests going in there to to make sacrifices animal sacrifices to um, picture really what Jesus was going to do by dying in place of the worshipper um, their blood was shared to take away their sin in this temple uh, and the, only the priests were allowed in there. Only one priest was uh, allowed to go into the very Holy of Holies in the centre of the temple, uh, only once a year. And so this whole system of the temple and animal sacrifices was part of their worship under that old covenant. And uh, God is saying here to the people and the priests in Malachi's day who have a smaller temple because the old big one under Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians. They have a small rebuilt version of that here. He's saying, well, you think it's small and it's poxy and it's pathetic. And so you're not giving me your best when you go in there. You think, well, what's the point? Uh, you know, why should we bother doing this? It's just a small temple. It's not very important. Obviously, God doesn't really care about it. God doesn't really care about us. So why should we care about him? Why should we care about what we do here? And their standards have been lowered. They are going in there and they're snorting at what they do. You know, they think the Lord's table is polluted and that we can despise what we're doing there. What a weariness this is, they say in verse 13. <laughs> and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Ugh. Oh, yes, I work in the temple. Yeah, Oof. it's a bit of a it's a bit of a chore. It's a bore. Um, whereas it should have been the greatest privilege on earth to be here worshipping and serving the Lord God. Here's Almighty. God's provision for yeah. dealing with your sin. And you're snorting at it. Yeah, you're giving God second best. But why are they doing that? They're doing that because they don't think God loves them. They don't think that God's covenant with them stands anymore. They think he's forgotten them. And so why should they bother with him? Uh, and so they end up, uh, you see from the end of this chapter, uh, in verse 13, uh, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. So they're supposed to bring to God a spotless lamb a spotless uh, bull, uh, a perfect animal uh, of a particular age and of a particular standard. They're supposed to bring God the best. And instead of that, they think they can just fob God off with second-rate sacrifices. Oh, well, we don't really need that sheep anyway because it's broken a leg or two. So let's give that to God because we don't really want it. That's not the attitude that they should be having when worshipping the Lord God of hosts, mm -hmm. the Lord God Almighty. Uh, who has the armies of heaven at his command. Um, we see that's why all the way through Malachi, God is often referred to as the Lord of hosts. Or the Uniquely Lord Almighty. in Malachi. Yeah, so many times, more than I think any other individual book in the, in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi use mm. that, that word a lot. Um, and he's saying that, I am the Lord of hosts. I have all the hosts of heaven at my command. 
I am not some small local tribal deity that you can fob off. I am the Lord of hosts. Um, and so when they go into the temple to entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us, verse 9, well, with such a gift from your hand, is he going to show favour to you? You're giving God second best. And he basically says in answer to that, well, I don't need you. God doesn't need us. He's not lonely. Um, yes, he wants everybody to worship him in the world. Yes, he's, his arms are open wide to all of us to come to him. But but it's not because he's lonely or because he's sort of desperate for friendship. No, he says in verse 10, Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors, just slam close the temple doors, uh, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. God would rather that they close the whole temple down than that they try to fob him off with second grade, second rate sacrifices. So God, God doesn't need that. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it says in uh, Psalm 50. He doesn't need them to bring him food or something like that. Um, so what they're doing is really dishonouring God in a major way. And he doesn't need them. Um, they're treating him very, very badly. So when you have taught this, where do you go with that, this <laughs> in terms of both in terms of presenting Christ, mm. getting to the cross and Christ, as well as... Um, practical application well that's right you must go to christ because the whole of the old testament points to him um moses wrote about me said jesus the old testament points to me um and that temple that whole system of sacrificial worship with priests and the holy of holies and that sort of thing it all points to jesus it all is there to teach us about what we need about our need of jesus our need of a savior and of a sacrifice and it teaches us in a sort of picture language about what the cross has achieved for us. So uh, we need a priest who will go in and offer a perfect sacrifice to God to atone for our sin. And Jesus is that. That's why the New Testament pictures him in those terms, that he is a great high priest, as the book of Hebrews calls him. And without him. blemish. Without blemish. He was the spotless lamb of God uh, who died in our place for our sins. He is uh, the one um, who, who uh, didn't deserve to die, who didn't have any sin of his own to atone for, and yet he died in our place, that we might go free. And so you have to go there, that he is the perfect sacrifice. There's only one perfect, unblemished sacrifice. So he is both priest and sacrifice himself. Um, in the Old Testament, you have the human priest and the animal sacrifice. Well, Jesus combines those. He himself is the offering on the altar of the cross, if you like, offering himself to God as an unblemished sacrifice. And then you, you have to look at how the rest of the New Testament uses this language of sacrifice. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't tell us to make animal sacrifices. That's all been abolished now. There's no temple for us to do it. Um, and we're not called in our local churches to make uh, sacrifices of goats and sheep and bulls that's not what we do that's all been abolished in jesus because it was pointing to him the new testament instead talks about us as christians as believers offering ourselves to god as a sacrifice so i would uh, usually go at this point to uh, romans chapter 12 uh, where paul talks about this i appeal to you therefore brothers uh, romans 12 verse 1 by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship so our spiritual worship now under the the new testament now that jesus has come is to offer ourselves to god to present our bodies bodies and souls everything we are everything we do 
to God. And then also in uh, Hebrews, we have this language of sacrifice used as well. So at the very end of uh, Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, uh, the writer there says, through Christ, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 15, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So Jesus is the sacrifice, the perfect one unblemished sacrifice. And to honour him and uh, to, to bring praise to him, we offer ourselves, our lips, our eyes, our hands, our feet, everything we are, everything we have as a sacrifice to God. And so really it's about wholeheartedness in our devotion to Christ. And I think Malachi, his particular message here is that God will only get the best when we know the best is yet to be. So he'll only get the best from us when we know that the best is yet to come. Which is why in chapter 1 verse 11 he talks about, um, I think, the future. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So he's giving them a, a picture of what will happen when Christ comes and when the gospel when the gospel goes out amongst all the nations, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. So the gospel has even reached these small islands off the northwest coast of Europe. It's gone across the Atlantic to those rebellious colonies on the other side. Um, the gospel has spread all over the world now. Um, and that should give a small nation with a poxy temple really a cause to, to think, well, wow, we should be giving this God everything. Mm -hmm. We should give him the best mm -hmm. because he's not just a local tribal deity. Mm -hmm. He is... He is going to be great. Um, and we have that same hope um, that in heaven we will be gathered around the throne of the Lamb with people from every tribe and tongue and nation uh, worshipping him forever. So how can we not give him our best now? Because one day he will be great among the nations and we will see that very clearly. So we might feel in our own lives we're not um, that we don't see him. We don't see how he loves us, but he does. And mm -hmm. we will see that in an even greater way one day in heaven and so that that sense of we will only give the best when we know the best is yet to come is also there in malachi as a, as a motivation for us this next section in malachi i i would think that most of my life there's probably only two topics i've ever heard preached and taught from malachi uh, one would be divorce <laughs> and the yes. other would be tithing so we'll get to tithing uh yeah. but Talk to us about this section and what uh, is really going on here in this conversation between God and his people, this conflict. Yeah, well, we have in the beginning of chapter two, really a continuation of um, a conversation with the priests. Again, he's talking to the priests and their job in the Old Testament was not just to offer the sacrifices in the temple, but to teach the people too. that the priest's job was to teach the law of God to the people of God. And they had failed to do that. Um, again, they'd snorted at that. They didn't think it was worth putting in the effort to really understand God's word and to teach it in a way that was clear. So they, they'd failed in their job uh, as sacrificing priests and they'd failed in their job as teaching priests. In fact, it's so bad that God says, I will curse your blessings. They're meant to stand over the congregation and, and pronounce a blessing upon them. God says, well, I'll curse that. I will curse your blessings. It's quite an ironic thing. And worse uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So because of the way they've treated him, 
he will treat them like the dung from the animal sacrifices. The intestines, the, the nasty stuff, um, was supposed to be taken out and uh, thrown on a, a rubbish heap. Well, God is going to treat them like that because that's how he has treated, uh, they have treated him. They're supposed to have had a, a covenant, a priestly covenant, if you like, of uh, life and peace, verse 5. A covenant of fear and honour and uh, awe. Um, Levi stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from iniquity. And the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But they've turned away from that. They've, they've given up that job of being good teachers and they've thought that, that their role as priests was something else and they've been shoddy in all of that. But then they do go on, as you say, uh, in chapter two, verse 10 onwards to talk about one particular way in which they've shown uh, disregard for God's law and his ways, which is in terms of their sexual morality. Um, and we often find this, that when people are contemptuous of God and his ways, they don't think it's important enough to really follow his word clearly, that one of the first things that will go is their sexual morality um, and their understanding of marriage. Of course, we see that in our own day, don't we? Um, in the in the world uh, where they've forgotten God and they don't know his word, but also in the church, in those parts of the church which have downplayed the word of God and keeping his word and that haven't been wholehearted about uh, giving themselves as a living sacrifice to him, then sexual morality and understanding of marriage is is completely transformed into way in ways which God will not be happy with. Um, so here we find um, in verse 10 of chapter 2, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? That's the key word here, faithless, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Have they been faithless? Well, uh, they've committed an abomination in Israel and in Jerusalem. They profaned the sanctuary, the temple of the Lord, which he loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So this is not just about marrying people from a different country or something like that. It's not a racist comment uh, or anything like that. I think I think Moses was probably married to someone from a different race, uh, to a Cushite woman, someone who was black. So I don't think it's anything to do we with race. We have Rahab yeah, and well, Ruth. Exactly, exactly. So it isn't about that. It's about the daughter of a foreign god. They have married outside the covenant. They've married someone, um, or lots of them have married lots of wives, who do not worship the Lord God. Um, and this is diluting and um, uh, their devotion to God, but also taking them away from God. Um, Solomon, of course, was the great example of this in the Old Testament. He did this by marrying hundreds of wives who followed all sorts of uh, different deities. But God is unhappy with this. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So it's particularly the priests here who are supposed to be bringing perfect offerings, who in their own lives have not brought perfect offerings to God in their marriages. And they find in the second half of this uh, section that God is therefore not honouring their offerings. He's not listening to their prayers. He's not accepting their offerings at his altar. And they say, well, why does he not? Why are your churches... Um, shrinking and dying off well why that's that's what we want to know don't we and that's what they're asking why why is he not accepting our offerings what why is everything going pear-shaped why is it shrinking and declining well because the lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been here's the word again 
faithless. You often find in the Bible, if, the, if a word is repeated several times, mm-hmm. that is trying to give you a clue as to what the main issue mm-hmm. is here. I think it's three or four times in, uh, in this section. You've been faithless to your wives, not only by um, marrying those who don't have faith in the true God, but by um, you have a wife of your youth, it says here. So the wife of your youth might have been a good Israelite girl who you married when you were young, a sort of arranged marriage. And then later on, you've taken a second wife or you've divorced her and married another one who, you know, a more of a love match or something like that. And you've been faithless. You have not kept your marriage covenant. You promised till death do us part, as it were, uh, to these uh, women. And you have broken that covenant. Uh, It is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant uh, between a man and a woman. Um, And God does not like this. He doesn't like it. In fact, the language here is very strong. Uh, It could be that he hates divorce or he certainly uh, does not like the man who does this because it is violent. It is tearing apart what God has put together. And if you take a step back from that and just think, well, why is it that God hates divorce so much? Why does he dislike that so much? Well, it's it's what's going on in Israel. God loves Israel. And it's the same word. You know, I have loved you. I have made a covenant with you. And that covenant still stands. He often calls himself her husband. Yeah, exactly. He is the husband to Israel, uh, a faithful husband. And so since he can't divorce and break his covenant, then we should not either. If we're supposed to be uh, imaging him into the world, that uh, faithfulness in marriage is to is to picture what God is to his people. That's why it's obvious for Paul in Ephesians 5 to use the relationship between man and woman to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, between God and his people. So marriage and the relationship of God to his people are supposed to be patterned together. They're, they're twinned, if you like. So when you're teaching this... Um would you how would you apply this to modern day i mean would you use this as a lesson primarily about christians avoiding divorce or marrying an unbeliever or how would you apply this i think both of those things are here as applications of it um i think what we we need to remember is that malachi's pastoral strategy in all of these uh, sections is to say something positive about god and to remind us that God loves us uh, and that he, he has a, the best plan for human flourishing um, in his word. And that when we step away from that, when we step apart from that, bad things will happen because that's just how it is when you w- walk away from the best way to flourish. Um, and so I think you need to put it all in that context. So he does at the beginning. We have one father. God created us. Um, he is faithful to us. That is the context in which we talk about our faithfulness to other people. So it's not just meant to be bashing us over the head here. It's meant to be in the context of God's covenant, positive love towards us. So I think you always need to make those things really clear. And that he has a plan, um, that he wants a godly family and a godly nation and a godly world. That's his ultimate thing of people who will worship him. And anything we do to break that Um, between two individuals, between a family in a nation, that will have consequences elsewhere. Um, So, yeah, the the application is in verse 16, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the the faithfulness um, application is clearly here. Um, We have to be careful because 
obviously in the church we we have all kinds of people we're we're all sinners at every level of our being even those of us who you know may have faithful marriages um are not always faithful in our minds and jesus said even those who look at a woman lustfully have committed adultery in their hearts um and so these these things are very real and very personal to all people whether single or married um uh, or whether divorced or faithfully married for 50 years so we have to handle them carefully um, How would you do that? You're standing in front of oh. a, a, a yes. group of people, and you, in fact, know that there are some people who have divorced that are that are sitting there in your mm. classroom under your teaching. Uh, perhaps some of them a biblical divorce, and perhaps others yeah. you're not quite so sure. That's right, because there are different grounds given in in scripture exactly. for why divorce may be sadly necessary or possible in yeah. some situations. And I think we have to acknowledge the messiness of life in those situations and acknowledge that we are all sinners that that malachi is not just sort of saying or the bible is not just saying you're the sinner you're out um but yes we're all sinful the bible is meant to help us to see our sin to expose it to us and then to help us Um, we have as believers we have the spirit to help us and strengthen us and help us to stand and stand firm for christ and to forgive so there is forgiveness with him um, that I don't think divorce is labelled as the unforgivable mm-hmm. sin. Um, it is a it is a horrible thing, and I think we all see that. I mean, everyone who's been through a divorce or has had divorce in their family, which I think would probably be so many people nowadays, um, will know that the tearing apart of that relationship has huge consequences. And so to, to teach this and, and talk about it in ways which are sensitive to people's real hurts, but then to help them see why it is that God has put these things down. It's for our own good. He doesn't want us to have those hurts and that, that sense of ripping apart something that should be together. But also to see that he does it because it's supposed to be a picture of his relationship to us. And I think once we get that, um, we, we will be able to understand this in that best context. And aren't we grateful for the good news of the gospel, oh. that there is one who has not broken faith. Mm. There is one who has been perfectly faithful Mm. uh, and in all things, yes, in our place. That's right. And then he approached people who had not. I I was struck by Jesus approaching the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who had five husbands and was living with somebody else who wasn't her husband. And Jesus said that and he knew that about her. And yet he still chose her to go and talk to and to lead her to a knowledge of, of himself as the living water, the thing that would truly satisfy her. So it's not that some people who've been divorced or have committed some sort of sexual immorality or something like that are untouchables. We're not Hindus. We don't have that sense that some people are uh, uh, untouchable. We can't talk to them and they're below us. No, as Christians, we embrace all people and we try and bring them to know and love the Lord Jesus and to live in a way which is pleasing to him um, rather than uh, pleasing to ourselves, which doesn't lead to our flourishing. As we move toward chapter three, the... uh... The Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And once again, they answer back to him, how have we wearied him? And he says, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? (laughs) They seem to think God is not doing right by them. Yeah. Or just generally, there's no justice in the world. Everybody who's evil tends to get away with it. In fact, they're all the ones with the money and the power and the prestige and, you know, the bad guy always gets the girl. Um, 
why is that happening? Where's where's the God of justice? Not just where is justice, but where's the God of justice? You know, there's no there's no God in charge. It's almost like they don't they don't think there might be a God um, who really is in control of these things and can can bring good out of it. Isn't he supposed to reward people who do well and his people? Is he supposed to look after us if he's if we're his people and do good for us and everyone else should be? You know, why isn't there a great empire for us? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we the ones in charge of the world? And what's God's answer to their search for justice? Well, again, it's not a straight answer that we might think, well, you know, um, we just want to clip one line and say, yes, I'll change my mind and I'll I'll bless you and you can have a great empire or oh okay I'll sort that out now I've forgotten about those evil people I'll um I'll make sure they don't prosper anymore it isn't that simple uh, God has a long term plan for all of this um and so he talks to us about the next step in that long term plan uh, to bring justice to the universe which of course we messed up by sinning and work, walking away from him um and so he says well behold here comes the next thing in the plan. Mm-hmm. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, the Lord of justice, the God of justice, he will suddenly come. Where's he going to come? Notice again, it's the temple. Uh, it's always centered on there. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So I'm going to send a person. You want to know where the God of justice is? He's on his way. Uh, I'm going to send him. So the Lord is going to come to his temple. I'm going to send the Lord. Isn't that interesting that God mm-hmm. is going to send the Lord <laughs> to his temple? Isn't it God's temple? So it's straight. It's maybe obscure here to the Old Testament reader. But we know we know who he's talking about because uh, the New Testament uses Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before the Lord. It uses that of John the Baptist. So you see at the beginning of the Gospels that uh, it quotes part of Isaiah and, and this bit of Malachi to say, John the Baptist is the one preparing the way for the Lord. So who comes next after John the Baptist? It's the Lord, the God of justice, coming to his temple to establish his covenant. Um, so we know that the one after John the Baptist is no ordinary man, that he's going to be the Lord God himself in human form the incarnate christ um so god is saying well i'm going to send somebody the messiah the one you're looking for the one you're waiting for he's coming i'm coming but when that happens do you think you're going to be okay mm-hmm. you know if the god of justice comes you think you're going to be all right you the- really think you want justice <laughs> yeah that's right uh it's that old story isn't there of that uh, the lady um who wasn't particularly attractive going to the portrait painter and she said, well, I hope, you, um, I hope you'll do me justice. And he said, madam, it's not justice you need, but mercy. Um, I think that's the, case. that's the case with all of us. If we call for justice in the world, then God will have to start with us too. And this is what Malachi says. He says, but yes, he's coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when the God of justice appears? For he is like refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Okay, so he's going to start with you, um, is what he's saying. He's particularly going to start with the sons of Levi. Again, the priests. We want to point to all those people out there who deserve justice. Yeah, I'm starting with you. Yeah. Um, And it's not that he's going to forget all those people out there. Um, but justice and judgment always begins with the household of God. We see that elsewhere in the Old Testament, um, that God has a particular interest in the people 
um, that he has chosen and he wants them to be purified and to be judged as well. Um, and he will then also bring justice to the rest of the world. So, yes, he's going to purify the Levites, the people, the priests particularly, who have fallen away from his uh, law. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, you notice in verse 3. So he's going to make it that these shoddy second grade offerings that they've been bringing so far are going to be up to scratch. He's going to purify the Levites in inwardly so that they will not want to do that anymore. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, this small nation, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. You see, they, they all think, oh, we've got a poxy nation now. It's not like the glory days when the, the great temple of Solomon and when we were in charge of all the nations around. It will be like those former days. It will be the glory days again. But in verse five, he then says, oh, and don't worry, I won't forget about all the injustice elsewhere. I won't forget about all the injustice everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I will draw near to be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. So God will judge all injustice. But notice he starts with us and he purifies and refines us. So would you say, Lee, that this was accomplished in his first coming? Um, I think it began in his first coming. So John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. The Lord came to his temple. So Jesus actually did turn up in this temple, this very place that they thought was not worth a bean. Um, and, and he appeared in that place and taught the truth plainly. And just outside the temple walls, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, he died to be the perfect sacrifice in our place. And he purified the Levites. So in a very direct way, actually, that we find in Acts that um, quite early on in the days of the gospel, um, as it went out, that some of the priests um, became Christians in those early days of the gospel. And so they did have pure offerings um, of their hearts and their lives to God in those days. And then, of course, on from that, the, the rest of the nations are now purified um, if they turn to the Lord in faith um, to follow him. But we don't see even now a world where justice reigns in the present time. So we might still want to say, where is the God of justice? OK, we can see that he might have started, he might have a plan, but he hasn't um, he hasn't been a swift witness to judge those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. Um, we see that all over the world. People don't get the wages they deserve for their work. He has not um, been on the side of the widow and the fatherless, it seems, because there are many orphans, there are many widows who suffer um, and are impoverished. The sojourner, the immigrants, those who are refugees, I think currently, while we're recording this, there are... Two million Syrian refugees in Turkey and others elsewhere in Europe, hundreds of thousands of people displaced by war and uh, injustice. And where's God? Is he going to sort all that out? Well, he hasn't done yet, but it's not to say that he won't. And we can see that from the way that he has kept his promises in the past. Malachi himself shows us that. So we see all these prophecies about what will happen have been accomplished in Christ um, as their first stage. And then a promise of a greater consummation and fulfilment of all these things on the last day. So we can trust that that final consummation of judgment will happen. And of course, we're told in the New Testament very clearly that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We Christians will all be appear before his judgment seat to receive what is due to us in the body, whether good or evil. And 
all peoples will stand before the throne of judgment on the last day to be judged for what they've done. God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he's given witness to us of that by raising Jesus from the dead and showing us who will be the judge. So we've got to make sure that we're on the right side, Mm -hmm. um, that we're following and that we know that judge before judgment day. And like so much that we read about in prophetic literature, we can look at what the prophet says and we can see a way in which it was partially fulfilled mm-hmm. in the first coming of Christ is being fulfilled during this age and yet a far greater fulfillment to come. Yeah, that's right. So we'll often see in the prophets, you, you'll find an initial fulfillment of a prophecy in maybe even in the time of the prophet or in the near future. Uh, so Isaiah prophesies various things about the defeat of Israel's enemies, and that happens in the book of Isaiah. But then you'll often see a greater fulfillment, usually uh, pointing to the Lord Jesus, something that he has greatly um, fulfilled. So Isaiah 52 and 53 point very clearly to the cross of the Lord Jesus. You can't read those chapters as a Christian without seeing that they've been fulfilled in Jesus, most of all. But then often with prophecies, there'll be a further um, perspective or horizon um, of a greater day when uh, when all these things will be accomplished on a cosmic scale or global scale uh, as well. So we've got to be aware of these different perspectives um, within prophetic literature. Then we move here in Malachi in the latter part of chapter three mm. into this part that Frankly, growing up, I always heard an annual sermon from this <laughs> <laughs> about tithing. Um, here, here's here's the problem. Uh, it says, ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees, have not kept them. Return to me. I will return to you. But you ask, how are we to return to you? Verse 8 of chapter 3, will a man rob God? You rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? <laughs> It's another one of those instances where they're giving God second best. Um, And it's also we've got to remember the context here, that in the Old Testament, they're under a very specific covenant alliance agreement with God uh, that he has set out very plainly in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, very plainly a covenant agreement with them that they will keep their side of it, which they promise to do, and he will keep his side. So if you give me the tithe, I will bless you in the following ways. Uh, and we see that outlined in the Old Testament. And often the, what the prophets are doing, um, prophets like Malachi and Isaiah and Jeremiah, are applying those covenant rules and blessings and curses um, to the nation in their day. And Malachi is no different in that. So he is saying, well, this covenant with God still stands. Yes, it's a thousand years old. By the time you get to Malachi, it's been a thousand years or so since Moses gave the law. Uh, to Israel and so they kind of think well it doesn't really apply anymore does it we tend to think now a rule a law that goes back to William the Conqueror in 1066 you know that that wouldn't really be around today I've got a great book on my shelves here about the old the strange laws of old England which lists all sorts of weird and and wacky things that were were passed um, in, in in days gone by so it was a law in 1648 I think it was that if you say the book of Malachi is not part of holy scripture then um, that is against the law it's illegal to actually say that i think you could be punished by death or something like that um now we tend not to think that law is applicable today um it's a silly one you know and apprentices in the city of london are not to wear spanish leather boots well 
that's obviously an obscure ancient law that doesn't apply anymore. And I think the people in Israel, the people of Israel in Malachi's day, had started to think the same way about the thousand-year-old law covenant that they were under. They thought, well, I know what God says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about if we do this, he will bless us. If we do that, he will curse us. And that he demands a tithe, a 10% of uh, all that we, we produce to be given to him for the work of the temple and, and, and the upkeep of the priests. But he doesn't. That's, that's just an obscure old law. We're not, we don't really have to keep that anymore, do we? And that's why they, they've been robbing him. Because God says, yeah, we are still under that agreement. I haven't changed. I, the Lord, do not change. I've not swerved from my covenant promise to you. But you have, because you're, you're Jacob, children of Jacob. You're deceivers. You're changeable. Um, but because I haven't changed, I'm still faithful as well. And I'm still forgiving, which is why you've not been destroyed. Despite the fact that you're robbing me. You're not giving me the tithes and contributions that you should. And that's why, verse 9, you're cursed with a curse. Curse and blessing are both covenant words in the Old Testament. That stuff from Leviticus and Deuteronomy setting out, here is the way of life, of blessing. Here is the way of curse. And if you fall away, you know, that's not the way to flourish. And very specific things are promised if you don't give the tithe. So this is taking up the language of the covenant in the Old Testament. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine in your field will not fail to bear. Verse 11. So uh, the curse, if you didn't give God what was his, was your your crops might be destroyed. There might be locusts or there might be some sort of blight. Um, God is saying, well, if you keep the covenant on your side, I will keep my promise. Then you will not see those things happening to you. Just bring the, the stuff in so that there may be food in my house, in my temple. And then you will be a land of delight and all the nations will call you blessed. So he's setting forth to them the way to be blessed under the old covenant. This is the way to, to, to find blessing under that agreement that they were under. When we're teaching people this, oftentimes they have heard this passage used um, by modern day health and wealth prosperity teachers, or I should say perhaps misused. Misused right? very often, yeah. How do we, in our teaching, help people to understand how it is being misused? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is to remember that we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and you can see that very clearly because we don't have a temple, we don't have priests, we don't make animal sacrifices. So why do we think that we can just take straight off the page these laws about tithes and offerings um, and just plonk them straight down into a New Testament uh, today context? We don't do that with animal sacrifices. We're not telling people to go around and get nice sheep to kill and offer to God in a temple. Well, that's obvious. Why do we why do we think it's obvious that you can just pick up the bits of the Old Testament um, about tithing and plonk them down into our modern context? We can't do that. We've got to be more careful than that. We have to see how the New Testament talks about our giving. And these tithes and contributions would have been tithes of grain, of animals. Well, we're not being called to give animals to our local church, are we? Um, in order to, to help the local church. So what does the New Testament say about this subject? How does it control our application? Because we are now under a new covenant, a different covenant. There may be continuities. The God of the old covenant is the God of the new covenant. It's the same God. And he, he works in typical ways. I mean, it's typical God, we say, uh, to work in particular ways. 
Um, but the actual concrete applications may well be different under a different covenant. I think one of the places I would often go would be uh, for this particular subject would be 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, and we do see some of the same principles, but also some differences here. So in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about a particular collection that he's taking up to uh, uh, from his Gentile converts because God is great beyond the borders of Israel now, um, and he, he's uh, made himself known to the, the Gentiles. He's taking up a collection from them to give to the poor in Jerusalem, as a sort of witness to them that God has gone beyond the borders of Israel. And he talks to the Corinthian church, the Christians there, about a particular um, subject to do with that. The point is this, he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So far, it sounds a bit like the prosperity mm -hmm. gospel. But Paul is saying that, well, that, that principle does still apply in the new covenant, that, you know, if you, if you give more, in some way you'll get more. Let's see what he goes on to say. Each one must give a tenth of everything he gets. No, no it doesn't say that. <laughs> it doesn't say that. So it's not as... Um, uh, lawfully set down like that. He says, each one must give as he has made up his own mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. There you go. It's not a legal requirement under the new covenant. It's not by compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. He loves someone who gives from the heart because they want to and they want to please God. Um, this is not a recipe for us giving less than 10%. Some people are worried about just saying, well, it's up to you. Leave it to your own heart. Oh, well, we won't be able to run the church on that kind of contribution. Well, actually, you should be able to, because if it's motivated by the gospel, by the goodness of God to us, people's hearts are changed and they want to give more than 10 percent. I imagine that a cheerful giver will cheerfully give at least a tithe and possibly more. Um, why not 20 percent, 30 percent of all that we get? The, the New Testament's not saying it's not putting a minimum on it, but it's also not putting a maximum on it either. Jesus told one man to sell all that he had and give to the poor and then follow him. God loves a cheerful giver and he is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Um, and I think it then goes on to say in 2 Corinthians nine ten. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your generosity, uh, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So I think that is saying it isn't necessarily a one for one correspondence of material giving and material blessing, that you will increase the harvest of your righteousness, that it's good for you spiritually to give to God. And to be cheerful and generous about that, it's good for you spiritually. You'll be enriched in every way. Possibly God will give back to you and increase your material prosperity. That is possible. But he may also um, bless you spiritually, that you will grow as a Christian in your devotion and your um, discipleship as a result of giving generously. Um, so I would say the health and wealth and prosperity people have got it kind of half right, but usually heresies are about half right, um, uh, that God may well do that. Um, I've always found we, we've been as generous as we can as a family over the years. And I found the more I've given, the more God has given back to me. And he's continued to bless us with all that we need. 
Um, maybe not all that we like. I would like to have a, a Jaguar XK and, uh, you know, a bigger house and, uh, you know, all those kind of things. But God has given us all we need. And he has certainly changed us and our hearts um, in terms of generosity as we've given to him. Thank you. That's helpful. Here at the end of uh, chapter three in verse 13, once again, the Lord says to his people, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what did we say against you? And you've said, it is futile to serve God. What is he saying to his people here? What is the profit of doing what God says? Why should we do that? There's no profit in it. It's a very kind of American heresy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Capitalistic heresy. Um, Where's the profit in that? Um, but as, we do very much say, is it worth mm, it? Is it worth it to serve and yeah. follow God? If it's, Or maybe I've heard some people perhaps who have turned away who said, it wasn't working for me. Mm, it's yeah. the same kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, it's very utilitarian. We just think, well, if it doesn't work, then it can't be right. Very pragmatic sort of argument. And so we call the arrogant blessed. So people who are arrogant are the ones who get all the stuff. They, you know, the bad guy gets the girl um, and, and they seem to prosper. And so it doesn't seem to work. Evil do is not only prosper, they put God to the test and they escape. Um, this really doesn't seem fair. And God's answer to that, um, again, points us to the future, to something that will happen in the future. But before he gets to that, it's interesting, we have this little aside in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Malachi. Mm-hmm. Those who feared the Lord, just look at the, the words used to describe their response. They fear the Lord, they speak with one another. The Lord pays attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance is written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them. And then verse 18, once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not. So, yes, there are people now who do not love God, who do not esteem his name, don't fear him. They're arrogant, they're evildoers, and they look as if they're blessed. And there are those of us who esteem his name, who fear him. And we talk to one another and we say, well, we want to esteem God and fear him, even if we're not blessed in this life. And he says, that's great, because they will be mine on that day in the future. One day God is going to, what does he say? Make up his treasured possession. Uh, and he's it's a, taking up a phrase again from the, the Old Testament. Just before the Ten Commandments are given uh, in Exodus chapter 19, God says, Uh, that the nation of Israel is his treasured possession. They will be his people. And then he gives them the law to help them to live like that. And so he's saying again, you are my people. I haven't forgotten my covenant promise to you. You will be my people. You will be the ones who enjoy eternal prosperity and blessedness. Um, And you have to look forward to that day. The Bible is always calling us, isn't it, to not expect to receive everything that God has promised in this life, Mm. but to live by faith, anticipating that there is a day when we will experience it all, everything that he has promised. And we we will say it was worth it. It wasn't futile. Most definitely. Most definitely. On that day, it will all be clear. Um, And I mean, that's what Malachi 4 says as well. You know, Uh, again, the um, chapters and verses are slightly unhelpful here Uh because, as you pointed out, clearly the news section begins in 3.13, with this new, your words have been hard against me. How have we spoken against you? That's clearly mm-hmm. a new section of Malachi. And I think it goes on into chapter four here, um, which isn't really a new thing. It's carrying on that same answer 
that the day is coming. There is a day coming when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. This is, this is again, quite hard teaching. Um, the, the day is coming when he will set them ablaze and leave neither root nor branch. So there is going to be a day when those arrogant people who seem to prosper now will get what's coming. Now, that's not for us to uh, preempt his judgment by, in this life, trying to cut those people down to size. No, we don't need to do that. We don't need to worry about that. That's in God's hands. I will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, and he will do it. We can trust him with that. What we must do is do our part, which is to stay faithful to him. Because he says in verse two of chapter four, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Isn't that wonderful? Um, it's from, I think it's from, is it Heart of the Herald Angels? One of those Christmas carols that John Wesley puts these words, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That Christ has come, he's risen, actually physically risen from the dead, which is a guarantee that one day we will rise from the dead. And on that day, we will leap like calves released from the stall. Hooray! Um, like in a rodeo, I suppose. You know, you, you set the animal free and it goes bucking all over the place and, and rejoicing that it is free. And that's how we'll feel on that great day. Um, so there'll be blessedness for us and joy for us while evildoers will suffer. I think the tricky bit is verse 3. People often struggle with chapter 4, uh -huh. verse 3. You shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. And we think, well, that doesn't sound very nice, that we will actually tread down the wicked. I mean, I, you know, some of these people who, I, I know them, you know, they're, they're my friends or they're my, my neighbours, my relatives. Um, they, they don't know the Lord Jesus. And on that day, I fear for them. Um, I can't think that I'll be rejoicing in what's happened to them. And that, that is that that is elsewhere in the Bible. We will hear that perspective. But here uh, in Malachi 4 and in Isaiah 66 as well, this similar theme of um, the people of God rejoicing in God's judgment, that it will be seen to be not just the right thing to have done, but a good thing that God has done on that day. And I think we, it's because we don't see sin as badly as it is. We don't understand that. I, I guess we get a picture of it. If you think about the Second World War, if you think about Hitler, um, being defeated now it, obviously it's a bad thing because you know lots of germans died uh lots of uh, lots of uh, good people mixed up in that um hitler was a person a real human being and he, he had to die you know that seems like a, a a negative thing but actually we rejoice in it don't we we think yeah and good riddance too there was some some sense of evil and sin involved in that and i think that is just a really small intimation of how we will feel on the last day when we look um, at the judgment God brings on on sin. But we want to think wicked people are someone like Hitler. Yeah. Right? So we don't think of it being yeah. a great wickedness to reject Christ. Mm. And yet, isn't that a, a wicked thing? It is. And that's why say. that is an illustration that really only does only works for part of what's going on here. That's mm -hmm. right, because it is, it is the ultimate evil to reject the source of life and goodness in the universe. Um, that's why it makes it really urgent that we get out there and tell people about Jesus and, and how he is the fulfillment of all these things and the fulfillment of all our greatest needs and longings. He's the God of justice. He's our father. He's our lover, our covenant lover. Um, well, we're at the end of book of the book of Malachi, and we're also at the end of the Old Testament. Yeah. And it seems as if 
this last couple verses of Malachi is almost preparing us for what we're going to read when we open up the Gospels. Help us understand how to teach this. Yeah, so we get verses 4, 5, and 6 at the end of the book. Uh, <clears throat> Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. That is basically saying, keep the old covenant until the day that Christ comes and fulfills it completely and changes the covenant to the new covenant. So that is their role at that point. Um, that is not there for us. We're not to keep the rules that God gave to Israel at Horeb. Um, that is now being fulfilled in Christ. We must remember that there is an, another page after this. Um, but their job at that point in history and God's plan was to keep those rules. And I think he just says that at the end of the book, because, again, he's pointing out to them the covenant that I made with Moses. It might be a thousand years ago, but I still love you and I still am keeping that word. My promise does not fail. And then verses five and six point us to the next immediate fulfillment. Behold, again, behold, we had that in, before in the book, didn't we? So um, behold, I will send my messenger in chapter three, verse one. John the Baptist is coming before the way of the Lord. Uh, and here again, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there is going to be a figure who comes before the Lord. Again, I think it's the same person, isn't it? It's John the Baptist. And the New Testament identifies John the Baptist with Elijah in that way as the one who comes to prepare the way. Clearly, it's not it's not it's not a hidden thing that we have to try to interpret. He's clearly described that. We read about that right in Luke 1 and then again in Matthew 11. Yep. But that's who John the Baptist was. That's right. And we get it from the lips of Jesus himself. And so I think he's a pretty good interpreter of the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so we can trust what Jesus says about that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that John the Baptist was that figure to come. It's interesting. I think there's I think it's true that many uh, Orthodox Jews will, when they sometimes they celebrate a meal, they will leave a place at the table empty. An empty chair will be left for Elijah because he's coming one day. Mm. Well, we don't need that as Christians because we know that he has come uh, and he, he came to point the way to Jesus that great and awesome day of the Lord has come in that sense, that the, the Lord Jesus came to his temple. Um, and we know again from verse 6 that th this figure, Elijah, uh, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Again, alluded to in Luke. Uh, Luke tells us that this is John the Baptist. This is what his job was. He had that preaching of repentance ministry. That's right. In a way, it'd be nice if Luke was the first gospel so that we could just turn the page and we would immediately see uh, that verse alluded to by Luke. But yeah, I'm sure there are good reasons for having Matthew next um, yeah. uh, over the page. And so the book of Malachi ends with a with a kind of unfulfilled longing that they're looking forward to an Elijah, the messenger to, who will prepare the way before the Lord comes. Um and we know from turning the page, there he is. Uh, he has come. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, has come. Uh, and we can therefore look back at Malachi. And we have to read that in a different way. We have to read that differently because it's been fulfilled. Um, we're under a new covenant. And things have changed. We still see the same God. This is still the word of the Lord uh, by the hand of Malachi. And so that's the connection that we have. The same God was dealing with his people then as deals with us now. Well, why don't we close this way, Lee? If you would just speak to those who are listening to this, perhaps they are considering or are, are in even now beginning their study as they work on preparing to teach the book of Malachi. Would you speak to them, giving them a word of encouragement or direction? 
if you're going to teach the book of Malachi, um, the great thing about it is it's only four chapters. It's very short, which means that you can really get to know it. So read it. Read Malachi. Read Malachi again. And then read Malachi again. So I think there are all these resources around. But if you know the text, um, even just have it without all the chapters and verses and read it through again, you see the structure that Malachi has himself come out very strongly. And the better you know the book, the better you'll be able to teach it. So I think it's an advantage that it's a short book. It's only four chapters. Um, so get to know it. Um, and then secondly, be wholehearted and devoted about it, because that's that's what Malachi is encouraging you to do. Uh, from start to finish, he he wants you to be wholehearted in everything you do. Um, I think chapter two, verses one to nine, when he talks about the covenant with Levi and true instruction being in his mouth, is a real encouragement to us to make sure that we're teaching truly and correctly from this book, uh, particularly. So Malachi himself will will goad you on and spur you on to teach this better as you go. Um, Maybe even just take those few verses out of the middle of uh, chapter two um, as an encouragement to teach it clearly and well. For true instruction to be on your mouth as you uh, as you pray and prepare for your teaching on uh, this book. Thank you so much, Lee. Appreciate this conversation. It's great to be here and to chat to you. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books, and tracts, including The Sermons of George Whitfield, edited by Lee Gatiss. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.